Well, one thing, um, this summer we're going to Mexico for uh, three days. Um, and if you haven't gotten the information on that, get on it. It's on the back table. We want you to come with us, and we're going to help you send out support letters. It's not overly expensive. I think it's 400, 420 bucks, something like that. Um, but if you've got a family like we do, that adds up. So uh, this is a family trip. Families can come. If you're in high school, you can come without your family. Um, but we need you to get your information in this week if you want help sending out support letters. So I was told before I came up to remind everybody of that. One guess who told me that. Anyway, <laughs> we're glad you guys are here this past weekend. We uh, had our marriage retreat. A lot of people there. It was a great time of, of connecting with God, but also opening up our marriages a little bit and seeing what God might have to do. And so it was, it was great for Callie and I. We still have some discussion uh, together to have because if you're like us and you have kids, we start talking and blah, 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 blah. You know, um, so we're still going to do some application, but we're going to get into this this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We've been in John for a little bit. I encourage you to turn there. It's kind of cool how we're going to end up next week at the triumphal entry, which is Jesus walking into Jerusalem a week before he was crucified. And so it's going to work out perfectly. We're going to see that. And then Easter Sunday, we're going to see Lazarus. But the question I had this morning was, have you ever heard the phrase, Christianity is not a religion, but it's a relationship. We've probably all heard that a lot. The question I would have is, what kind of relationship? Because <laughs> there's lots of kinds of relationships. And there's a lot of dysfunctional relationships. And most often, correct me or don't correct me, but think about it for yourself. Um, we, we attribute God, or, or we, we, we compare God to our Father. So the relationship we have or had with our Father is often the first relationship we imagine with our heavenly father. What is he like? Maybe similar to our dad's. But how many of us had a real healthy uh, father, son, God to human-like relationship with our own fathers? I uh, was reading a story. I don't remember if I was reading it this past week or heard it. I do so much. But there was a, it was a man, and he was sharing. He was from an immigrant family. And they moved here, and of course, they worked real hard to get here, and he was in school, and he said that when he was in junior high, well, all through school, his whole thing was his parents said, we gave up everything to get here, now it's up to you to be successful. And so all that was placed on him, it'll be worth it, all the work we did will be worth it if you're successful. And so in junior high, he had a vocab test, and I think he got a high B on it, and he got home and was berated for getting a high B rather than a high A. And so they spent three hours grilling him on vocab words because he just wasn't good enough. And I think often, it struck me as I listened to that, often that's how we look at our relationship with the Father. That he just wants us to be really good. And when we're really good, you know, we're going to church and we attend a marriage conference and maybe we're reading the Bible some and we haven't hit anybody lately, then he's happy, you know, then, then he loves me. You know, I've driven the speed limit mostly, then, then we're good. But when I go off the rails, you know, when I sin, when I do that thing I'm not supposed to do, but I keep wanting to do, or I've missed church for three weeks or I haven't read my Bible all week, then God is kind of like this, like, when you get your act together, then I'll, I'll love you again. But right now, we're just not doing so good, you and me. But yet, that's not the truth. The truth is, and we're going to see that today, the truth is God loves us based on the merit of Jesus Christ, not on your merit. 
God will accept you completely just the way you are because of Jesus, not because of you. Uh, this weekend, it was Matt Chandler who did our, our teaching. It was, it was video. It was great. But he said one thing that really stuck out to me. He said, do you know that God doesn't just love you. He actually likes you. But, th- but you think, it, yeah, <laughs> but think about that for you. Seriously, look in the mirror of all your flaws and what you are. And God looks at you and goes, on purpose, <laughs> I like you. I like you and you are accepted and I'm going to spend eternity with you. And I went to the cross for you, not because of anything that you've done. That's the truth. That's the truth. We could have just done the most awful sin in our minds and genuinely turn to God and go, ah, forgive me. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Come here. I'm sorry I did that. What'd you do? You know, the Bible says he forgets our sins. That's the truth. That Jesus, when he went to the cross, which is we're going to celebrate this um, a week from Friday, Good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, he took all the punishment for our sins. Two days later, three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. He did that so that you could be accepted, and you are. Now, Christianity is a relationship with God through Jesus. And what does that look like? Today, I want to say, what does it look like for the person who gets it? The person who understands the grace of God. What does that look like in our lives? And we're going to look at a woman named Mary. In John 12, we're going to look at Mary. And Mary, I think, is going to give us one of the best examples we have in Scripture of what it looks like when someone gets it. When someone understands the grace of God, internalizes the grace of God, the love of God, and enters into the right kind of relationship. John chapter 12. Now, you may be looking at your Bible going, wait a minute, you skipped chapter 11. Because <laughs> Alex taught last week on John 10, and he did a great job. It was a lot of fun. But we just skipped the raising of Lazarus, and there's a reason. I prepared that, and I was going to teach that, and I was all excited about it, and God said, no. He said, Teach that Easter Sunday, because here's what we see with the raising of Lazarus, and and it was something that I haven't picked up on. I've been a Christian since I was probably six years old, and as I studied that this time, some things were just new to me. It wasn't that I'm like, oh, I have new revelation of what God's word says. No, don't trust that, but some things were new to me of Jesus and and God's emotion moving toward a face-off with death. And what he did, his face off with death where he won with Lazarus and he rose Lazarus from the dead. It was kind of a a prequel to what he was going to do later on the cross himself. And so we're going to look at that Easter Sunday because I think it'll help. You know, Easter is one of those days that the Christers come. You know, the Christers, the people that come on Christmas and Easter. Um, (laughs) The Christers will come Easter and we want to give them the best picture we can of the gospel of Jesus. Um, And so we're saving that. So don't worry, we're not skipping it. We'll come back. But we've been going through John. We've been looking at the good shepherd. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. This was in John 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then Jesus says later, I will give my life down for my sheep. I will lay it down. No one takes it from me. I will lay it down of my own accord and I will take it up again. That's his love toward us. You know, as I was preparing this and thinking about this, what's the the best parallel we have probably our own kids. You know, I love my kids dearly, but I don't love them because they're awesome. 
You know, why do I love my kids? It's not because they're better than your kids. It's not because they're the best kids around. I, I love them because they're mine. I don't love Brendan because he gets up on a Saturday and he's like, I think the lawn needs to be mowed. Can I mow this for you, Dad? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that's happened. <laughs> I love Brendan because he's mine. That's it. And it's the same way with God with us. He loves you because you're, you're his. You're his. If by faith you've accepted Jesus as Lord, you're his and, and he loves you. And he likes you. And he likes you. So look at John 12, um, chapters 1 through 11 have really been Jesus. It's been a polemic on Jesus. It's been John saying, here is who Jesus is, the great I am. There's seven I am statements that we see. Jesus says, this is what I look like. This is what God looks like. I am representing Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door of the sheep. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. I am the good shepherd who will provide, protect lay down my life for my sheep because I want a personal relationship with him. So all of this has been pointing to Jesus's deity, but also the relationship that he wants with us. Who is Jesus? Now, the rest of the book, the rest of the, of the book of John is all the last week of Jesus's life. So here right now, things are changing. It's going from a, a polemic on Jesus. Now Jesus retreats and he's going to go in with his close disciples, those close to him, and he's going to start teaching them because he's gone in a week. And so he's going to take that last week and he's going to focus on them. We're going to see him at the upper room discourse um, when they we get together and it's just him and his disciples and very intimate. And so a lot of this is going to apply to us. But here there's a shift. There's a shift where Jesus now backs away from the crowds and he gets in with those close to him. And here in this situation, we're going to see Jesus with Mary, but he's with a small group of people. We're going to start, um, just to get the context, in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 45. We're setting the context now, just so you know, it was before this, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was very dead. We're going to see that on Easter Sunday. He wasn't just a little bit dead. He wasn't like in, uh, what's that movie? He wasn't mostly dead. He was all dead. And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He called out and Lazarus came forward from the, from the tomb. And uh, following that event, this was in Bethany. Um, and what we're going to see today's event was also in Bethany, which is only two miles from Jerusalem. So it's very close to the center of Jewish leadership. And so word got there quick. Word travels fast when it's only two miles away. Um, and so here's what happens. John 11, starting in 45. Many of the Jews, therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. What he did was he raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw that, so they believed in Jesus. But some of them, knuckleheads, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. They said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Here's their problem. Here's this Jesus character who's doing things nobody's ever done. And of course, people are believing in him. People were there when Jesus called to the tomb and Lazarus walked down. They're like, this guy's legit. And they went back to Jerusalem and telling everybody about it. And so word is spreading. And, and so the council gets together and said, this can't be. You know, if he's just a, a teacher or whatever, that's fine. But they're starting to get some talk about him being a king. Him being this Messiah, the Messiah is, they knew it was going to be the Jewish king and they were looking forward to when he was going to come back and set up his reign and rule. 
If that's this guy, what that means is that he's going to set up his reign and rule. And Rome, who was in control of Jerusalem, in control of, of the Jews at the time, would go, uh-uh, there's only one king and that's Caesar. You're setting up a king, we're going to come, we're going to take all that away. So the problem with the Pharisees is they're saying, our way of life right now, yeah, you know, Rome rules us, but it's not all that bad. Look at how much they had some autonomy. And so the Jews still got to govern themselves for the most part. And these Pharisees had a lot of power and control. And so they're saying, wait, Rome's going to come and take away our power and control. I'm going to have to go work in the fields or something. I don't want that. I want this job. And so they are looking at it from, from a very selfish point of view, and they need to take Jesus down. Regardless if he is the Messiah or not, he's got to go. Now look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So, Caiaphas, he doesn't even really know what he's saying, but he receives a prophecy. So the Jewish religion was the legit religion of God. They were the true religion. They were. The, the, the law came through the Jews. God was the father of the Jews. He was the, the God of the Jews. And so here, Caiaphas, he gives a prophecy that's from God, but he doesn't even fully get it. He says, it's better that one man die than the rest of us perish. If we kill him, Rome won't destroy us. One man dies, the rest of us are good to go. So let's kill him. But what he doesn't get is what he's really saying is one man's going to die. Jesus, this guy, he's going to go die. And when he does, he's going to set us all free from sin. I mean, that's the, the parallel application of this prophecy. He didn't even know. We're all slaves to sin until Jesus sets us free on the cross. And through that act, his death and his resurrection, then others are going to come in. That's us, Gentiles. Those of us who are not Jews, we get to become part of that family. And so Caiaphas gives this prophecy that he's going to do this and none of them get it. He doesn't even get it. They think it's just all political, but no, it's the spiritual well-being and eternal life of humanity, of those who would follow him by faith. So this is what's setting up, and, and get the picture, because we're going toward Easter. Easter is in two weeks. We're moving toward Jerusalem, toward Jesus' death and resurrection. So look at verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. See that switch? Things are different now. But he went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So crowds are going to Jerusalem for their biggest festival of the year, their biggest feast and celebration. Verse 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So that's the scene. Everybody's heading to Jerusalem and the buzz is all about this guy, Jesus. Is he coming? Is he not? The word is going around. They're going to arrest him if he gets here. And now Jesus takes his disciples and he goes back to Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. And there he goes into a house and he has a dinner with his close disciples, with Lazarus, who he had just raised from the dead. Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha. And watch this. Now we're going to see, we're going to see what does a person look like that gets it? 
the person that understands the grace of God and the right relationship with Jesus, what does it look like? John 12, 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So here's the scene. They're in Bethany. Uh, this same event is recorded in Matthew and Mark, and we get a little bit more details that fill it in. Uh, there is a different account in Luke. We're going to see Mary anointing Jesus. There was a different woman who anointed Jesus at a different time in Luke. That's not this one. This one, they go and it's in a house, the other gospels tell us, in the house of a man called Simon the leper. That's who's hosting this party. It's probably an intimate party. Bethany was more of a village than it was a city. So not a lot of people. So Jesus goes, he probably goes to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. He goes there and, hey guys, we're here. He's like, oh, Simon wants us to come over for dinner tomorrow night. So they go over to Simon's house. And here's the scene. It looks like it's more of a banquet because they're reclining at a table. Um, and it, maybe it's one big table, but it's probably several tables set up and they're reclining. They're low tables to the ground um, and they would have cushions around. If you've ever... When I went to prom my senior year, we went to a Moroccan restaurant and we actually did this. It was kind of girls in their dresses and we're, our, and we're like laying on these cushions. But that's what it was like. So they were laying on these cushions with their feet away from the table and they were eating and, and, and having this banquet together. And Simon the leper is the host. Simon, we don't see much of him in scripture, but people would, would argue he was probably a leper and healed by Jesus. That's why he has a house and he can invite people in because lepers were outcasts. They weren't allowed around other people except for other lepers. Uh, and leprosy was a disease that was incurable. It couldn't be cured. So this guy, is with, he's obviously not a leper anymore. So he had experienced the grace of, of God through Jesus. Jesus had healed him of an incurable disease. He's there at, the, at, at one of the tables. Lazarus, he had been dead, all dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead, and here he was. We're going to see this on Easter, but Mary and Martha, they were just distraught that their brother was dead. And now he's alive, and he's at this meal. He's at Jesus' table. His disciples are there. We know that. Mary and Martha. So there's probably 15, 16 people. Maybe there's a couple other people there. We don't know. But they're having a banquet. It's a celebration, but it's also somewhat solemn. They know that there's been a hit put out on Jesus. They know that it's probably moving toward the end. And so here they are. Here's the scene. They're celebrating. They're eating together. And look at verse 2. Uh, verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. We're going to spend most of our time on this verse, looking at Mary. Mary comes in the room. Martha, we always see her, she's always serving. She's the type A personality. She's the one that speaks her mind. She's the one that's not afraid to challenge Jesus. There was another time they were having a dinner and Martha was serving and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet listening. And Martha comes in and says, Jesus, tell her to get up and help me serve. And Jesus says, no, she's chosen the better thing. Not that what Martha was doing was wrong. Martha gets a bad rap. Martha was serving, but Mary chose the better thing of sitting at his feet. So Martha and Mary, we see them frequently, but Mary... Mary was unique. She had a unique relationship. And so she comes into the room now. Picture the scene. They're all there. They're laying there. Mary comes in. She lets her hair down. She takes this, this jar of nard. It's a pound of nard. 
expensive perfume. It was from India. So it was, it was roots or uh, herbs from India that they would turn into this expensive perfume. She took that, she broke it open, and she started anointing Jesus. Now here in John, we see she anoints his feet. She's cleaning his feet with this expensive perfume. Here's the scene. She also does his head. We see in the other gospels that she also anoints his head. But John doesn't talk about that, and we'll talk about why. But she comes in. She, this, this nard, this stuff, um, it was so expensive, it was worth about a year's wages for an average laborer. A year's wages. So there's several assumptions we can make. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they could have been wealthy people. It's possible, most likely. But even a year's worth of wages in that, they, would use, they could use this as an investment. You know, so rather than having like sacks of gold or whatever sitting there, they w- sometimes they would buy something like this nard and they would keep it safe and they would keep it there. And then if they really needed money, they could take it to the market. It was easy to sell and get rid of. Um, so this very well could be her life savings. This scent, this nard, this scent, it would be known. So she would put this on and walk through the market and people would, would get a whiff and they're like, somebody who, who you know, they, they knew that smell. It was a unique smell that only an aristocratic woman would wear. You know, and I don't know if you get scents like that. I have a curve. That's my cologne. I almost said perfume. Um, and, and I started, I got, my sister got it for me, I think my sophomore year at college. So long time ago. Um, and that was what I wore. I mean, back then I wore it all the time. Um, that was, but I still wear it. So I, still have the same bottle. It lasts a long time. And she had a whole pound. That was even more than what I've got. But so when I put it on now though, you know, I, every now and then I'll put it on and, and walk out and Carrie's like, Hey, <laughs> like we going out. What's that? <laughs> when she smells that it communicates something to her. Um, maybe, you know, the smell of ax. If you have a teenage son, you know, the smell of ax. Um, <laughs> When, when uh, Brendan was a little younger and he started getting into smelling good for the ladies or whatever it was, um, we'd be out and we're like, oh, Brendan's up. <laughs> you know, you look down and the fog is just coming down the hallway and here comes Brendan through the fog. Of, you know, that was before. He doesn't do that anymore. But now, if you're out and about, you know, you're walking through the store, you're like, there's a teenage boy. right yeah, There he is. <laughs> but that was this nard, you, you know, this smell it pointed to her as a wealthy, aristocratic woman. This was part of her identity, who she was in society. And she took that and she broke it open and she poured all of it out. The Bible tells us she didn't save some for later. She wasn't like, yeah, I'm going to put a little bit on. All of it she poured out. Expensive perfume. She gave her best. She gave her best. I want you to get that. What is the proper response to someone who understands the grace of God? They give their best back to Jesus. It's always the case. Do you remember when David, when David, um, he did what he wasn't supposed to do. He took a census of the people. And so God says, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a plague coming. And so a plague comes through and kills thousands of Israelites. And finally, God relents. And the spot where God relents from, from this plague um, and he stops. David goes to that spot and he says, I'm going to build um, uh, 
um, an altar that I'm going to sacrifice right there to God. So he goes to that spot. The owner of that property comes out. David says, I need this land right here. I'm going to build an altar. He says, great. I'll give you the land. You want some wood? I'll give you the wood. Hey, here's my oxen. We'll kill them. And that's a sacrifice. And David says, will I sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing? He says, no, I will pay the full price for all of it because a sacrifice must cost something to be worthwhile. The book of Malachi is all about this. Malachi comes to the people and he says, you guys are sacrificing blind and lame animals. You're giving God your worst. But the law said, bring your best, your first and your best. If you get the grace of God, there's no other way to do it. We must bring our our first and our best. And that's what Mary does. Mary's gift was immensely valuable. She gave all of her best to Jesus. All of her best. Do we give our best or do we give our leftovers? I think one example, um, go to most churches, go into the nursery and look at the toys. People normally give what's worn out, <laughs> broken down. That's not the, I'll be honest, that's not the case in this body. It's been awesome. Um, when we need things, people go and they buy good stuff and they, it's awesome. But a lot of times people will give, well, we don't need this anymore. Look how great we are. We're going to give that. You know, this, oh, the wheel's falling off. You guys should fix this. Kids will love it. <laughs> you know, we, we give what's left over rather than our best. Now, the synoptics highlight, synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Matthew and Mark, they highlight that, that Mary anoints Jesus' head. Their reason for doing that is they're pointing to Jesus as king. You would anoint the head of a king. And their purpose in writing was to highlight that part, that Jesus is the Messiah king that's been predicted. And the very next day, he would go into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, where people say, hail the king of the Jews. Um, But here, John never mentions that Mary anoints his head. He only mentions that she anoints his feet. And I think the reason is he's pointing to Mary. I think we are learning something about Mary here more than we're learning something about Jesus. Mary, she does an act that was only reserved for slaves. Jews wouldn't even do it with other Jews. When you would go into a house, they wore sandals and it was dusty. Somebody would wash their feet. That was the lowest of the low job you could do. Wash somebody's feet. And and now Mary is doing that. She's washing his feet with perfume (laughs) and wiping it with her hair. Picture that. She's doing the lowest of the low job. Now, in a week later, Jesus is going to do this. A little less than a week, probably. Jesus is going to do this uh, before he goes to the cross. He's going to come into a room. He's going to put a towel around his waist. He's going to take a bowl. He's going to wash his disciples' feet to say, this is what leadership looks like. This is what love looks like. I'm going to do the lowest of the low job for you. Jesus, God in flesh, did that for his people. Mary did it first. (laughs) Mary did that to Jesus. No disciple had ever done this to Jesus. They had never gone into a house and and Peter's like, hey, let me get your feet. (laughs) That had never happened. But Mary did. Mary, she got it. She understood something. Her action, Mary's action showed humility. Her action showed humility. It wasn't about her. This is, this is the point that really uh, strikes me sometimes as I look at this. You know, am I willing to be looked down upon, slandered for the sake of the gospel? When I was in high school, one of those things we would say is, you know, be a Christian, that's fine, or I would hear this. Just don't be a Jesus freak. And it was about then that, that song came out, Jesus freak. 
but just don't, don't go too far. Like going to church is cool. Go to youth group. That's great. Mission trips. But don't, don't be one of those freaks that it's all about Jesus. Don't carry your Bible around, you know? And, and that would strike me some like, okay, am I going to, I had to think about that in high school. Am I going to be a Jesus freak and actually talk about him and actually read my Bible and maybe have it with me? Or am I going to keep it on the down low because I don't want to look down? Not Mary. Mary doesn't care what they think of her. She goes in, she lets her hair down, she washes his feet. A woman's hair, then they would typically keep it up. They wouldn't let it down in front of men in general. And so she lets it down in front of these men uh, and their hair was, was their glory. You know, they're long, just picture there, the Jews, long flowing, probably dark hair. Their hair was their glory. She took her glory and she made it Jesus's rag. There's something significant. Why did she use her hair? She was communicating something by using her hair to wipe his feet. Not only humility, but she was expressing her position to this, this man who is God, who I think she got that, who is the Messiah, her love and devotion. Mary's sacrifice showed complete devotion and extravagant love. Extravagant love. Verse 3, I'm going to read it again. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. If you walked into the room, what would the first thing you would notice? What would be the first thing you would notice? That's right, the smell. You'd walk in, you go, what's going on? And then you'd see Mary over there. Why does he point that out? I think the picture is a broken life is a sweet life. Elsewhere, Paul talks about our lives being an aroma. As we live it out for God, we are an aroma to God. We're an aroma to some of life to life, others from death to death. Living for Jesus, really living it, for some people it's going to be like, that's awesome, I love it. Other people are going to go, you stink. <laughs> I don't want to hear that junk. Keep that away from me. And so this, this aroma fills the room. A broken life. Listen, a broken life is a sweet life. We try and hold on, don't we? We try and hold on to our dignity, our pride, our self-worth. We Americans, you know, just don't walk on my rights. We try and hold all these things and be all in for Jesus. Not Mary. <laughs> you can have it all, Jesus. All that I own, this is all yours. My identity in perfume, you know, how people recognize, it's yours too. My pride, I'm just gonna let my hair down. It's all yours, I mean, look at this. Beautiful, beautiful. A broken life is a sweet life. But then look what happens in, in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, I've heard commentators say John was not crazy about Judas. So every time he gets the chance, he gives a little jab at Judas. But just to, you know, this is the one who's going to betray Jesus a week later. He was about to betray him. Um, by the way, the other gospels say the disciples. He points out Judas. The others say some of the disciples said. So Judas wasn't the only one saying this. Um, but John points out why he is. But Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That sounds good, doesn't it? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John did not like Judas. <laughs> so he points this out, but here was Judas's motive. 
It sounded good, but his motive was he got to carry the bag. He would be the one that when they get there, hey, hand us a couple drachma, whatever, um, and we'll go get the bread. And so he would do that. So he kept the money bag and something like this, 300 denarii, that would fill up that bag. He'd be like, they won't notice 20 of these. So that was Judas. But the other gospels say it wasn't just Judas. And doesn't this challenge make some sense from a pragmatic point of view? Okay, you're, you're wasting all this on, it's just going to go away. But there's all these poor people out there hungry. And all, the law talked a lot about the poor. God always talks about taking care of the poor. The New Testament is full of taking care of the poor. So this isn't a, you know, a bash on charity. We should be you know, giving. But the point here is they are thinking pragmatically, what could we do with this? And this is maybe one of those things that stuck out most to me. I'm that type too. <laughs> I'm pretty pragmatic. Um, I want to be efficient in my time. And my, so are, what we do, are we accomplishing what we're supposed to accomplish? Are we getting it done? Multitasking, you know, I, I multitask. I listen to the Bible while I'm doing something else. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But one of the things for me, you know, in our group, we're talking about spiritual goals um, and where we want to be later. And one of those things for me is being more like Mary and actually sitting for an extended period of time, reading meditating, praying, being silent, not multitasking. But you get more done. It makes more sense to multitask, doesn't it? Not if you're wanting just to connect in relationship to Jesus, it doesn't. And so they're thinking pragmatically, whereas Mary was all about the relationship. She was all about Jesus. And so Jesus responds. He says in verse seven, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Leave her alone. He would be gone a week later. He says, you won't always have me. She's doing this to prepare for my burial. This action I put in here, it does not have any pragmatic value. It is the I love you cry of a broken heart. It is the I love you cry of a broken heart. Jesus says, if I have the choice between a good act with the wrong heart and an honoring act with the right heart, I'll take the right heart every time. Her statement, her action of I love you was the most precious thing to Jesus. What she did was a big deal. One of the other gospels, Mark states that Jesus also said, he said, in fact, wherever the gospel is told, this story is going to be told too. So why did John write this down? Because Jesus told him to. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, John was here, he saw all that, and he's like, oh, I need to write this part down because Mary is going to be honored. Wherever this is taught, we hear about Mary because she, she did something nobody else had done by communicating this love. She didn't have to, this love. So I have Callie's ring. This is a ring. We were, Callie and I were talking last night, and I'm like, okay, what, what do you have that uh, is precious to you um, that points to, you know, the, a kid's love? And so she's like, easy. She pulled this off. She's been wearing this since Brendan was in fourth grade. In fourth grade, Brendan, uh, before Christmas, normally at Christmas, if you've had kids, you know this. You give your kids 20 bucks, you're like, okay, go get your mom something nice, whatever. <laughs> and so the kids go, you know, they spend 10 on themselves and 10 on the gift, and they come. Um, but, but this, Brendan took his own money. 
Brendan, he wasn't told to, he wasn't asked to. He went and he looked at, at we called it Santa's workshop when I was a kid. I don't know what it's called now. Um, I don't think they even do it anymore, but they had all these gifts that kids could buy for their parents. And Brendan looked and he saw one and his thought, from what I understand, was mom's gonna love that one. Mom, and so he picked this one out. He picked it out and he was so excited to give it to mom. Now, it used to have jewels in it. It doesn't have any more. It used to be round. <laughs> It's not anymore. We were in the hot springs recently, and, and it turned colors. So I think it's kind of cheap. Um, <laughs> but when it turned colors, Callie was like, no! Because, it, I mean, what's the value in this? The value is not in this. The value is in the heart that gave this. The heart that said, I'm thinking about mom. I'm not thinking about me. I love you. And he gave this. And she'll cherish this forever the heart that understands the grace of God. What do we give back? We, a lot of times we think it's about the value of it, but it's not. It's about the heart that gives it. That's what he wants. He wants the heart. Romans 12.1. This is what sums this up probably the best. In Romans 12.1, Paul says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is it that God wants us to give? Us. What does God want from you? You. Not any kind of legalistic duty. He doesn't want you to give 10% and do all this. I mean, there's value in that, and we'll, we'll touch on that. But he wants you. He wants you to give yourself fully to him the way Mary did. She gave herself fully to him. And when we understand the grace of God, we have to. We don't have to give anything to God. That's the beautiful thing. Every religion will tell you what you need to do to earn merit with God. Every religion, except for true Christianity, biblical Christianity, it's not about what we do to earn anything. We've already been given everything. And so anything we do is simply a response to what he's already done. You already have it all. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, guess what? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Guess what? You're going to be with him forever. You're accepted. He looks at you and he sees Jesus. He loves you. He likes you. And so our only proper response is to give him everything back. We don't have to give him anything, but we have to. Listen to that. Does that make sense? You don't have to give him anything. But if you get the grace of God, you, you have to. You can't help but not. You know, it's like sometimes I'll go and I'll do work for a couple days. I'll be gone and I'll come home. And when I come home and Callie sees me, she just has to wrap her arms around me. I mean, she doesn't have to, but she has to, <laughs> you know, um, I'm irresistible to her. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the picture. God, when we understand the grace of God through Jesus, he's irresistible. We have to, but we don't have to. We don't have to earn anything, but we have to. Now, Mary, I'm going a little over, forgive me, but it's okay. Why does Mary nail it? Mary nails it. What does she get? She gets something. And it says here, when Jesus says, leave her alone, let her keep it for the day of my burial. Mark elaborates a little bit. Mark says that Jesus stated, she is doing this to prepare me for burial. He would be dead in a week and they would prepare him for burial. And Jesus said, she's doing this to prepare me for my burial. Most would say she knew. She knew that he was going to be dead soon. She got it. Did she know he was going to rise? 
I, I don't know. But she knew he was going to give his life. Now, he had stated this very plainly just days before to the disciples. I mean, as plainly as this, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen, just so you know. I'm going to be turned over to the high priest. They're going to condemn me. Then, you know, the, the Gentiles, the Romans, they're going to flog me. They're going to beat, yeah, they're going to beat me. Um, then I'm going to die. Um, but two days later, I'm going to rise from, he says it that plainly, and they're like, huh? <laughs> they, it, the Bible says they didn't get it. They didn't get it. But Mary, Mary got it. And I think there's a glimpse of why. Every time you see Mary, she's at his feet. We're going to see this Easter Sunday. When Jesus comes and Lazarus is in the tomb and dead, when Mary runs out to meet him, the first thing she does is falls at his feet. Martha runs up and says, Jesus, if you would have been here, Mary runs up and falls at his feet and says the same thing. Jesus, if you would have been here. When they're having a dinner, Mary's at his feet listening. Here at this one, Mary goes, she's always at his feet. She's listening. It's about him for her. And movies now will try and tell you there's some romantic thing or whatever. No. She loved him. She loved him. Yet, don't we often go to him for what he'll give to us? Don't we want to get? I mean, this is, I'm talking me. I, I'm talking me. What am I going to get out of this deal? Not Mary. Not Mary. What did she get? She understood it. And she gave from the heart. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 says this. King David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You hear that? A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. David says, you don't want my stuff, you want my broken heart. That's what Mary did. She gave him her broken heart. And in Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, all these things my hand has made, looking at creation. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. And this is talking about who will he look at with favor. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He's saying the same thing. The person who is broken before God, who hears the word and takes it seriously, trembles at his word. This is the heart. So whenever we talk about giving around here, we, we, we narrow it down to our time, talents, and treasure. Should we give to God of our time, talents, and treasure? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if we're giving it without a heart that's already his, if we're giving it to get anything back, it's worthless. And I might say, stop it. <laughs> stop it. Now, um, Churches would tell me not to say that. They're like, well, you need their money because you got to operate. No, stop. If you're giving to God from the wrong heart to get back, God says, I don't want it. I don't want it. I want you. Then what you give is from the right heart. So can you give generously and sacrificially of your time, talents, and treasure with the wrong heart? Absolutely. Can you have the right heart, a broken heart before God and not give back to him? I don't think so. That's where the rub comes. Can you claim to be a Christian and actually love him and be broken and yet go, eh, I'm going to be like most Americans and give about 2%. I have a hard time with that. Because now, you know, you get into that, it's like, oh, legalist, we have to give a certain percent. No. Once we understand the grace of God, he has everything. He has everything. So when God calls us to move and, and go do something somewhere and it's him telling us, it's like, well, we don't have to, but we have to. 
I love him. He's shown me his grace. He's given me everything. Now I got to go. I got to go be part of what he's doing. We hear about a mission he's doing somewhere, whatever it is. God is moving. I don't have to give to it, oh, but I have to. God is urging me to be part of what he's doing. This is the last note. Is your generous and sacrificial giving an overflow of a heart completely devoted to Jesus? Is your generous and sacrificial giving an overflow of a heart completely devoted to Jesus? Are you mesmerized by his grace and his love? And if you're not there, listen, if you're not there, join the club. (laughs) If you're not there, how can we get there? We get there by being like Mary. Sit at his feet. Spend some time with Jesus. These are areas I lack. And so what do I need? I already told you my spiritual goal. I need to sit and shut up. (laughs) I need to stop multitasking and I need to just enjoy my Lord. And then my giving will have some value because I'm giving out of a heart that just loves him. I'm mesmerized by his grace. I just want to challenge you. Think about that. Where are you? Do you get it? And if not, don't just go work harder. (laughs) Don't just go give more. Be mesmerized by Jesus. Let me pray and we're going to sing some more. Father, thank you. Um, Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that we don't have to give you anything, but yet when we understand you, we have to give you everything. It's all about you, Jesus. You are so worth it. Let our song now be acceptable to you. Let our song now be from hearts that are broken before you. We have failed you. We know it but yet we're accepted because of your love, because of what Jesus did. We know that too, and we will rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.